I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. So much of cancer research exists at the intersections. And going into today's conversation, I thought our intersections solely would fall between oncology and genetics. That's because as a leading genetics researcher and oncologist, Dr. Jeffrey Weitzel has devoted his career to helping people and populations at increased risk for developing cancer because of family history or personal risk factors. Dr. Weitzel is director of the Clinical Cancer Genetics Program and professor of oncology and population sciences at the Beckham Research Institute at City of Hope. Among other career accomplishments, he led a groundbreaking study that revealed that BRCA mutations may be present in 25% of U.S. Hispanic women, leading to calls for increased genetic testing and counseling. Dr. Weitzel is at the forefront of developing low-cost genetic screening materials, as well as training doctors and nurses for underserved populations in Peru, Colombia, and Mexico. But as you'll hear, through his work and relationships and through the extraordinary education programs he and colleagues have built, Dr. Weitzel covers areas beyond oncology and genetics. Listening to him, it's clear his work also delves into history, anthropology, sociology, and even storytelling in his effort to address disparities in breast cancer prevention and outcomes. Simply, Dr. Weitzel sits at the vanguard of personalized medicine. It's extraordinary and inspiring work. Before our conversation, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. Here's my conversation with Dr. Jeffrey Weitzel. Dr. Weitzel, thank you for joining me. I appreciate your time. My great pleasure. There are so many places a conversation with you could go, and I certainly hope that we get to go to all of those places, or at least most of them. Um, but I'd like to start with your work that centers on improving access to genetic screening and breast cancer prevention in Latin America and Mexico. And let's, per- let's start perhaps with a laying of the geographical land. How big is the screening and prevention problem in Latin America and Mexico? Well, I think um, I don't think we have to go beyond our own borders to get some sense of that as well. Mm. Um, You know, really, our project is about started at its heart to address disparities. So I'm an oncologist and a geneticist. So this oncogenetics realm um, and, you know, certainly there are many BCRF projects that relate to the causes of breast cancer. Uh, I'm, you know, people come to mind like Mary Claire King and others who are just absolutely stellar leaders in identifying hereditary forms of breast cancer. And while it's not the most common cause of breast cancer, it is perhaps the most impactful. The, the, the risks are so extraordinary that, uh, you know, people really deserve to be identified and given guidance as to how to take care of their risks. So, so over 20 years, it's been over 20 years that we've been able to do commercial gene testing for breast cancer predisposition. Um, and that, you know, there are still groups that are left out in the United States. So this really goes to my own backyard. I'm, I'm living in Los Angeles 
and we have a very rich Hispanic fabric. A lot of people um, with ancestry that might originate in Latin America. And this goes literally back to about 2000, and tw- about 2000 the year 2000. And one of my dear colleagues, um, I'll, I'll, if you don't mind, I'll tell you a story. Please. Um, Dr. Felton was the chair of oncology at one of our safety net hospitals. So this is uh, uh, one of the L.A. County hospitals. 89% of their indigent service population is Hispanic and, and or has um, Spanish language as even their first language. And, you know, she came to me and we were at a breast cancer retreat talking about science. And she said, we're dying out here. I have 32-year-old women mm. coming in with easily palpable stage 3 breast cancers. And they have a family history of breast cancer. Why weren't they identified, given access to genetics, and the opportunity for prevention. You know, this is something that's so obvious. We, we know the story. We know what hereditary breast cancer looks like, but these people weren't getting access. And so I said, well, let's look at that. We literally created an infrastructure right off the bat. We're going to open a free clinic. We're going to provide the care, but we still have to figure out how to get the testing done because those days the test cost $4,000 for two genes. Yeah. And Medicaid did not provide coverage for testing. But first we had to say, okay, well, what do we need to do special for these individuals so that we can make them feel comfortable and that if they, you know, if you build it, will they come? If they come, will they learn? If they learn, will they do the right thing? And if they do the right thing, will they be free of cancer and, and live longer? And was that conversation, was that the inspiration for you for your groundbreaking study that, that revealed that the, the BRCA mutations may be present in 25% of U.S. Hispanic women? Is that what drove you to do that research? Well, you know, this is the thing. When you go to do the right thing, sometimes you learn other stuff. Mm. So, so again, uh, from a friend, friendship level, you know, we started this program to address a disparity. And, and I'm honored that I also have a conquer cancer professorship in breast cancer disparities in part to this legacy. But we first published on the beliefs and interest in risk assessment in Latino cohort. We said, if you build it, will they come? We literally put that in the title. We started the clinic and said, okay, are people coming in? Are they learning? And they were. And then we, by hook or by crook, we got funding and created our own funding to try and get testing done. And in the process, we discovered that, wow, these people had a high prevalence of mutation. Mm. This is in our study just at the county hospital, yep. and which we published on in 2005. And further, that we saw the same mutations repeatedly, which suggested a population-level impact of history, anthropology, and epidemiology. So I'll, I'll tell you more about that story in a moment, but we kind of through the back door learned the epidemiology, and that's because nobody else was taking care of these patients. And so what happened in the interval is I have a large research network. This is something I've built over 25 years. I have 39 sites in the U.S., and now we have seven in Latin America. And we're all running the same protocol, which is everybody we see for risk assessment, we enroll, and we study. Now, the 2013 paper that you're talking about, which at that point was published in Journal of Clinical Oncology, which is a high-level journal, because it was a novel observation of 746 individuals, all of whom had breast cancer, and presumably at a young age, they met criteria for testing, and we got testing, and it represented mostly Mexicans and Latin Americans and Central Americans based on our service area. So and, and what was it? Was it, that 50, was it that 52% of them had the same mutation? I might be getting the fact wrong, but what, what, what was that? What was the data there? What it, 
So, so there you were correct about the 25%. So of 25. all the women with breast cancer, 25% had a mutation. Of those mutations, we found that there were two specific mutations in BRCA1 yeah. that accounted for a large proportion of cases, and then multiple other mutations were seen. And one of the things we discovered, because this was work I did again on this initial cohort from, from the county hospital, which was first we found a bunch of mutations. Then there were new technologies coming along, which is to look for specific mutations that couldn't be detected by just sequencing. And they're called large genomic rearrangements, so big deletions. Ironically, you can find a misspelling in the gene very easily with sequencing, but if a whole chapter is missing, you don't see that because everybody's got two copies. One copy's normal, one mm. copy's not. Mm -hmm. And so you're just reading through and you think they're all normal, but they're actually just completely missing that stuff. And it turns out that we were one of the first observations of a large genomic rearrangement, so a very specific type of mutation that l was repeating in this population, had never, been had never been reported in Spain or any other country. And so we surmised that this was a what we call a founder mutation. Any geographically or culturally isolated population can have this. We further went and found out that not only was this frequent in the population, it looked like it was in Mexico. We found it once in Venezuela, but it turns out that individual was Mexican. Um, so, so it turned out to be exclusively from people who originated in Mexico, and um, it was frequent. And we did what we call haplotyping to determine how old the mutation was, kind of like carbon dating. Mm -hmm. And we mm -hmm. found out that it was 1,500 years old. Wow. So this long predated the colonial Hispanic influences, so the, uh, the colonial influence of the Spaniards, etc., and really reflected origin in an indigenous population, so indigenous American population. Yeah. Not, not, brought by, not brought from Europe. That's right. Now, we found a lot of other mutations that were frequent. So the other one that was a very interesting observation, we first published in 2005, one of the first times it was documented, was multi-generational Catholics. We found the 185 Del-AG mutation in BRCA1, which is a known Jewish founder mutation. Yep. And what we published on then in 2005 was that they shared the same chromosome as my Jewish patients from West L.A. So, so this shows an uh, ancestral origin and that links it immediately to history and to anthropology. This is where I get just completely excited because we start talking about the impact of history and humankind and the consequences of diasporas. Um, so think the Spanish Inquisition 500 years ago. Uh, it's about 500 years ago this, this year. And they basically caused a mass disposition of many Sephardic Jews, so Spanish Jews yep. who moved to Portugal and then to the New World. And so we were able to establish that there was a much larger diaspora that was of conversos, people who converted to Catholicism to survive, than had been anticipated. So that mutation and this founder mutation we found in the indigenous population were the two most common mutations in the whole cohort. So, so that was really illuminating, and it helped me understand the impact of world history. And not surprisingly, we saw a bunch of Spanish mutations, too. So there are other mutations that are common in Spaniards that are seen in this population. One last population is represented, and again, bringing together our, our world history view, is um, there was an African founder. Hmm. And that reflects the impact of the slave trade, especially in, in um, Central America and in Mexico on the, on the Gulf Coast. Because remember, that was where a lot of the slave trade entered. And so 
we saw exactly what you would expect for the admixture, the type of blend of cultures and ancestries that you see in Mexico. So again, I learned a lot about ancestry, anthropology, and epidemiology by trying to do the right thing. That is, take care of people who had no access to care. Well, I was just going to say, you, you're, you're raising one of the most fascinating parts of these conversations for me is the intersections. And so often the intersections mm-hmm. that I come across um, are, are from oncologists who are studying or have worked in one type of cancer. And from working in one type of cancer, lung cancer, you know, the cancer of the, you know, stomach cancer, other, other areas, they, they take those findings and apply them in other areas of study. And, and that mix has, has not stopped fascinating me. What I'm hearing from you is it's, I'm, I'm wondering to what extent, okay, you, you're, you, you're not a historian by, uh, by study. You're not an anthropologist by study, but is the fact that you are an oncologist and a geneticist was, you, you know, was that mix of your background part of what enabled you to really go forward on, on the type of investigation that you, that you did there? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, geneticists follow lineages and sometimes those lineages go way back. Um, so, you know, that's a natural interest on that side. The oncology side of me is all about, you know, what's the problem? What do mm-hmm. we need to help with? Where, where are we having a problem that we need to take care of people? Um, and so you're right. Those things. So I'm sort of a junior anthropologist as a result <laughs> of this. But but really, I've, I've read the books. You know, I'm starting to read the books and the things that relate to this, these historical angles. And then it actually provokes new scientific questions. You know, you look at these ancestries. And, and, but what was important at the time, let me just add one other thing, is remember, we were talking about disparities in access to care and the absolute limitation because of the economics. So the other thing we tried to do is we said, okay, 75% of the patients who have a mutation have one of them that we've determined were on our short list that they were recurrent, that they're historical, ancestral, that these genes, we already knew these genes didn't mutate frequently, meaning new mutations aren't quite found that often. Um, So we said, can we do a cheaper test? So I actually turned around and created in my laboratory, I, I like to call it the pragmatic research, which is, can I get testing done cheaper for my patients without having to spend $4,000 a test? And we did. We created on a platform uh, that uses mass spectroscopy a $20 test that picked off 75% of the true mutations. And so that allowed me, even in my county hospital population in the U.S. before Medicaid started paying, we were able to figure out the 10 or 15% who were carriers based on this very cheap test, turned around and converted it with a commercial test to at cheap cost to now have a tool for the whole family. So really we're leveraging science to be pragmatic and literally translate directly into access to care based on knowledge of epidemiology. And so so what's happened since then is that, you know, we started to raise that flag and really push that theme that, you know, don't leave anybody out, that any population that looks like it's got hereditary breast cancer probably does, but how do you take care of these people? Because it's still, we need people who are trained in genetics and oncology. So we married this to what I will call our, we have an award-winning doctor training program. So doctor, nurse, and genetic counselor training program. Is this we the, call it our intensive. Yes. Is this, is this the cancer genomics education program with Dr. Blazer? You got it. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I want to, yeah so please so, go ahead. Uh huh. Yeah. So Dr. Blazer, Kathy Blazer was a genetic counselor. She was one of the first genetic counselors that I hired when I got my first education grant back in 1997. 
Um, hate to tell you, how, you know, she was obviously quite young when I hired her. Um, <laughs> but Dr. Blazer, which is Dr. Blazer, because along the way, she we had gotten very involved in really brought our education program because we realized that post medical school training and even fellowship training of oncologists was completely deficient in understanding how to apply genomics and mm-hmm. cancer. Mm-hmm. And that's become even more so the case. I'm sure you've had other podcasts where you've talked about uh, precision medicine. So this whole intersection of genomics and oncology is just so stimulating and so fascinating. But people need that training that they didn't get. And not only that, we she championed what we call situated learning. So we've taken practitioners who are in practice and use their own cases to help them learn. And it turns out that this is the most profoundly effective way to train practitioners is to make it situated. It's relevant to their practice today and to use their own cases in that learning. So, so suffice it to say that over time, we developed a, a program that's over 100 continuing medical education hours, CME hours, and involves a lot of immersed learning and She's Dr. Blazer because she went and got her educational doctorate at UCLA while she continued to work at City of Hope and has raised the bar even further on our program so that I'm very honored that last year the American Society of Human Genetics recognized us as a team yes. That, yes. Uh, to for their education award, which suffice to say we've taken this award-winning program and said, okay, how can we increase access to care? And how can we leverage this epidemiology? Because even though we continue to expand access to this care in the U.S., and I will say there are still deficits in the underrepresented minority populations and in disparities there, and also among Hispanics in the U.S., but we have made a lot of progress there. We now have trainees in every state in the union and 26 countries. Now, how do we then take what we learned and maybe take it to Mexico? And this is where really BCRF has been so instrumental Hmm. is that these things take a while to develop. And um, we have to be patient because even though we've been doing testing for 20 years in the U.S., they still don't have a fundamental access to genetic cancer risk assessment in Mexico, Central America, and most of South America. And this can be said also probably for Africa and a few other places. But we said, hey, we're training people, but it doesn't do them any good to get trained if they don't have tools. So I have a registry protocol that allows return of results that are clinically actionable to the patients and the clinicians who are participating in this research. So what we've done is created a implementation intervention. So there's a whole science of dissemination implementation. I've had to learn multiple sciences beyond oncology <laughs> and genetics to do research, right? Yeah, so yeah, it sounds like research. It. Will they show up? What what are the social cognitive aspects of Latinas preparing to undergo risk assessment? Yes. So I've learned so much from my colleagues and embraced my colleagues who are multidisciplinary. It's so important. Um, you know, and again, genetic counselors are so key to that process. So anyway, we embracing all these various specialties and, and things and learning how to do dissemination implementation, which is really how do you take this practice that you feel is medically important and will help to save lives? How do you get other people to adopt it? And what are the barriers? And so it's a whole study. They're the PIs of their own registry, but they send the biospecimens to my laboratory at City of Hope, where Joseph Herzog and Danielle Castillo um, both work in my lab, and they're just awesome because they do all this work. They receive all these samples. We extract the DNA. And even though I didn't want to be a service lab, I have no intention of being you know, one of the major commercial genetic testing laboratories. I realized that if we did it cheaply, yes. and I'm using a number of different tools, um, where we can now do... BRCA testing 
plus another 30 genes, all for under $100 per yep. case. And so that puts it into the realm of research funding yep. and into the realm of plausibility for these other countries if they can pick up the technology. So it's partly tech transfer, too. But in the meantime, we said, well, you don't want to just give them the tool and tell them to go test people. You want them to take care of them appropriately. So we train them in the course. They get the high-level training in, in cancer genomics and how to apply it in the clinic. And they go back to their own setting. They create their own clinic, and we help coach them on creating clinics, which is part of what dissemination implementation is about. Um, and by putting them in our registry, we accomplish two things. We now continue to grow the body of knowledge about epidemiology. So what are the country-specific patterns that will help to convince their own healthcare uh, administrators that, that it's important? And second, they're literally giving that care to their patients and helping to find ways to take care of that risk when they find it. Um, I'll give you an example that is, is so pragmatic. If a woman, unfortunately, most of these people still have cancer when they're identified. We're not yes. quite at the identifying the at-risk relatives. But if a woman has 35 years old or 40 years old, comes in with breast cancer at whatever stage, and I will tell you that the stage distribution in countries without good screening is dismal. It's like stage three, but they have big families. And so if we can identify the risk in that woman, she gets good care and survives. And we find out that because she's a BRCA carrier, she has an extraordinary risk for ovarian cancer that could take her life. And we have almost no chance of early detection there. Um, so that's an implementation intervention, take her ovaries and tubes out after completion of childbearing that could save her life. Yeah. Then on top of that, we now have the anchor for that family. We do what's called cascade testing. So now we can go to her sisters. And even if we can't provide comprehensive care for everybody in that family, at least half of the individuals won't carry the mutation. So we can give them reassurance that they're average risk. And the other half, we can focus what limited resources we have. So this is about allocation of limited resources in low and middle income countries. So if I looked at it at a population level, how do we help in a bigger way? Um, our goals are nothing short of changing entire countries' plans for the care of high-risk individuals at risk for breast and ovarian cancer. And at the immediate level, I believe we are saving lives now by not waiting until genetic testing is somehow implemented by commercial firms at, a, at an adequately low price that the countries with such limited resources are willing to pick them up and in integrate them. So, so we're really creating the infrastructure to implement these cares um, and getting immense experience for the people locally and for our general knowledge of epidemiology to help guide these directions. So again, the BCR funds have been so important to be able to have the patients so that we literally develop these programs one city at a time. So we're in Mexico City, Guadalajara, Monterrey, we just opened up a clinic in Tuxla, which is in Chiapas. So even in a poor country, yeah. a low middle income country, this is like the poorest. Yes. And, the most, and historically, uh, there's been real danger there. That's right. Real danger and historically, dis, you know, disparities, even within that setting. They're more indigenous people and there's a lot of disparities. So we're partnered there with uh, Francisco Guterres and his clinics. He trained with us. We went and did a site visit back in January before COVID-19. Um, he was the most gracious host, but we got to see where they're going to do their, their work. We got them logistical support, and we've already tested over 50 patients for his clinic. So and that'll serve 
people in Chiapas all the way down to Guatemala and up into Oaxaca. So, you know, a very large area that, that they'll help to serve. We're also in uh, Bogota, Colombia, Medellin, Colombia, and Lima, Peru. And so this is the, the, the nucleus of the network. And I will tell you that overall, supported by Breast Cancer Research Foundation, we've helped to test more than 4,000 women hmm. over the last five or six years. Yeah. And that means 4,000 families with access to care, at least 15% are carriers of a significant mutation that influences their care. And so we're starting to create a legacy in terms of publications as well. So we have one publication from 2014 on triple negative breast cancer. And out of 190 women with triple negative breast cancer, we found that 27% had a mutation on our quick screen. So mm. we screened 190 women in two weeks for $5,000 um, and came up with 45 carriers that quickly. This is, you know, you just can't do it on a scale when we're being, we're being nimble. We're doing what we can. And we found out just recently, we've got some really exciting data coming out that we're writing right now, so it's unpublished, but suggesting that there may be a difference between the mutations, that the mutation that's that founder mutation, while it confers great risk, also may confer um, some survival benefit if given chemotherapy. So we're actually starting to get into the pathobiology of breast cancer, not just who's at risk, but what are the outcomes. We're also studying what's the uptake of risk reduction surgery. So do the women who we identify get access to the care? Because remember, this is all on the backs of those saints, those clinicians at each of these sites. We said, we'll help you define the risk, but you've got to figure out how to take care of those patients. And rather than saying it all had to be lined up before we started, we said, let's get this going. And the natural experiment, which has been just amazing, is that when given the opportunity, when give the patient the information, let them be empowered, give the doctors the information, let them be empowered, they find ways to work the system and get the care. This has been really remarkable that they're going to figure out how to provide the care where they are, and it's respect for cultural and uh, situational circumstance. So we aren't promoting U.S. guidelines. We're promoting locally relevant guidelines yes. in terms of the care that they provide. And so, you know, we're, so I'm becoming more adept in understanding of all of these very important, uh, I'll call them uh, cultural humility is, I think, the new word. That's um, a, that's understanding a, how... Yeah, it's a, it's yeah. a terrific phrase. In, in listening to you, th there are so many um, just key ideas and such important concepts that, that jump to me. One is, um, you, you know, when you say that you've, you know, tested or, you know, 4,000 uh, folks, it goes beyond that. The, the cascade effect of what you're learning because all of a sudden the folks within that testing environment who, who do discover that they have a genetic mutation. I know you already know this. You've just now positively affected, at least with uh, arming them with information about themselves, their whole families, every, you know, every member, yeah, the sisters, absolutely. you know, granddaughters, nieces, you know, and, and list goes on. that's number one. Number two, the thing that occurs to me, it's so, so uh, tragic. Um, I'm certain you feel the same way. Uh, you, you mentioned that so often um, in, in some of these locations in, in these, in the U S in other places where there is disparity of care and disparity of access um, that the person who comes in comes in because the risk 
identifier that has come up in her life is the actual cancer is you, you described it as so often they come in and it's, it's stage three cancer. They haven't been identified yeah. before then. And, and obviously that's tragic and sad and you wish to goodness that, that somehow you'd been able to, or, you know, identify them earlier. That said, same thing. If you, you know, then they go through the process and all of a sudden you're now able to, you know, arm the rest of their families. And, and yes, maybe you, you phrased it, you know, maybe you'll be able to find some other type of cancer that they might have been, you know, might have come across or had ultimately. And by, by doing this care, um, you will have, you will have identified that you mentioned ovarian cancer as an example uh, lastly and and this is this is kind of my question so one question is please correct me if i'm not interpreting the lessons that you're that that you've been describing because i'm i'm just trying to communicate back to you what i'm hearing um in in getting to 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 hear the work and and you know the study and and impact that you've made um, but going into this conversation, one of my main questions was, okay, doc, you're worried about disparities. Um, you know, where do you begin? Is that a money question? Is it an access question? Is it a social question? Is it a healthcare professional question? Is it an education question? You, you know, is it, is it a science question? You know, when you talk about disparity, what, what exactly does that mean? And what I'm hearing from you is, Yes, it means all of that, and that probably is what defines, uh, you know, some of your one one of your current research programs, um, the multimodal approach to address these disparities. It really is multimodal, isn't it? Absolutely, and it's, you know, it's it's creating infrastructure, generating knowledge, uh, being able to help influence health policy decisions. So yes, yes, yes. Program, it's a public policy right? issue, of course. Yes, it's a public policy. Yes. You know, but but by, by, but again, by demonstrating the impact. So by going and not waiting for little pieces to come together, but to put it all together and to allow my colleagues to take the lead. They they really do take the lead. They're they're extraordinary in their efforts. And we're publishing locally. We're publishing globally. And the idea is that they they will establish that the problem exists. And that there's a pathway to some solutions. And so it, we, we're laying the groundwork for this. And in fact, we've been working, one of our colleagues we work with, Alejandro Moja, he was the former director of the National Cancer Institute in Mexico City. And he was at one point or another also working, uh, as a, as a, uh, agent of the, of the Ministry of Health. Um, and one of his charges was to create a national cancer plan. Mm. And, we were able to at least get his ear because he was one of our earliest collaborators and uh, probably our biggest critic, but once convinced, our staunchest ally. And so, uh, and I and I appreciate my my friendship and my my collegial relationship with him to date. Um, but he, you know, had written in to this national cancer plan, allowed us and my partners in Mexico to help write a component of the plan that started to integrate the concept of genetic risk assessment and the need for scale up to be able to take the lessons we're learning from the BCRF project, expand them, and now apply them to other parts of the country beyond the major population centers. So so I think, you know, we're already seeing the path that we need to take. You know, it was also sobering, I'll tell you, because we went there in January, had a physician roundtable, and all the same things were still there. But even worse was at the time, because of political changes, and we know that well in the U.S. as well, that 
things changed. Uh, support for different programs changed. And they were in the process of dismantling their safety net program called Seguro Popular, which threatens our program. So we actually talked about starting a social movement. So mm. I got to tell you, it was just so, in, it's so, in, in, you know, inspiring to see them, you know, standing staunchly to support their patients and those families and realizing that they've got tools that can make a difference and finding a way, just finding a way. As I say, nature will find a way, you know, humankind will find a way. And if we, you, if you might have just, yeah, and if hu- humankind will find a way, and you may have just answered the question that was going through my mind, which is listening to you, it is beyond obvious that you are inspired. It's beyond obvious that you mm-hmm. are enthusiastic. Um, are you optimistic? I am passionate, and I believe, yeah, you can't do this kind of work without being an optimist. Because um, you know what, if I if I'd been a fatalist, we never would have started. We would have said mm. there's too many barriers. And in fact, we did even um, some focus groups and things. And and you know there was a, a fairly um, you know concern about there's so many elements that are working against the integration of this care. But but you know we chose that we put a wedge in there, right? So you put the wedge in, which is knowledge, the teaching, the training. They and then you let them be inspired. And find a way. And, and again, we just started building tools and putting them together and hence the multimodal intervention, the recognition that it's the registry because I have to do the testing in my lab now, but eventually that's not going to be the case. It'll be available commercially, but cheaply and effect and, you know, in good quality that they'll already have in place the structures for the follow up care. Because again, it's not just getting the risk assessment done. It's what do you do with them once you know they have risk? And again, that's, it's, it's so inspiring to, to just follow my colleagues. And they're, you know, when I give them the tools, they're the ones who are really doing the hard work. You know, it's easy enough for me. Well, it's not easy to write grants. <laughs> we, we write grants. We sit back. You know, it's not ivory tower. You know, I get out into the field. So, I, you know, I do travel. We do site visits at these sites because yeah. we want to see what they're up against. Yeah. We want to see what they've done. And we, we come in not like an audit, but as a, it's a friendly audit. You know, here's what you've done. Boy, you know, these other sites in, in uh, Peru they made got over this barrier by adopting this. So we helped them adopt best practices, you know, and, and shared amongst this group. And we have a cohesive group, the people who recognize common goal. They're in multiple different countries and we're innovating together. And so I will tell you that, you know, we're, we publish together, we innovate together and I never stop. I try to never stop learning and listening. Um, you know, I talk, I tend to talk too much. I get that all the time, but I do listen. What? And I'm particularly keen on my, my absolutely spectacular colleagues in Mexico, you know, Dr. Yana Chavarri in Mexico City, uh, Dr. Cynthia Villarreal Garza in Monterrey. They're some of my longest standing colleagues and, and partners, and uh, I think they're brilliant. They are the, the future of oncology and prevention in Mexico. Just absolutely so. Julio Abugadas, who's in Peru at the National Cancer Institute in Peru, a breast surgeon. Again, the future of, of prevention there, along with Pamela Mora. So, so, you know, that's where I get my inspiration. And I think, um, it, you know, it helps me to understand our impact well beyond the walls of the city of hope. So that's also, you know, and, and you know, I mentioned also that, you know, here's the other thing. Here's, here's something interesting. Yes. Okay. So we're trying to help them do strategic allocation of limited resources. So at the end of the day, if you're just a healthcare policy wonk, 
um, you know, we have a limited number of money, amount of money and so many needs. How do you do this? But, but I would tell you that, you know, there's a big drumbeat for can we get breast cancer screening for all women? And I don't offend anybody, but, you know, for many women, they might be a one in a, you know, one in 10 chance at most, uh, maybe less. We're being able to stratify that risk more, but the BRC carrier is an eight out of 10. Mm-hmm. So if mm-hmm. I have only a certain amount of money to apply for screening and people are not getting regular screening, only 19% of women are getting breast cancer screening in Mexico, despite the fact that it's technically a covered benefit. So, so as a basic limitation there, but if I could only screen one set of people, it's like you go, you know, it's when, um, Willie Sutton was asked, why do you rob banks? <laughs> I know. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's where the money is. That's where the money is. Yeah. Okay. So the same applies here. If you apply the strategic allocation of limited resources, if you can cheaply identify those at highest risk, you'll make the biggest impact with the least amount of money quickest there. And and I'm certain when I look at the uptake of the risk reduction, removal of the tubes and ovaries and the contralateral, the other side mastectomies that are being done as prevention for some of these BRC carriers with breast cancer, I'm confident that we've already prevented a bunch of ovarian cancers and probably quite a number of breast cancers. So this is prevention in the moment while we're still working on the implementation. And that's exciting. But think about this is that they're teaching us how to get limited resources to work for a population. We can take that home and yes. start to address disparities in the U.S. Yes. and in low-resource settings. Yes. So, so it's a reverse engineering. That isn't that it's just a one-way street where we're just bringing stuff to them. We're learning from them, and I hope to bring that to disparities in the U.S. I'm, I am certain that you are. Um, I knew coming into this conversation that you are, are recognized as a world-class oncologist and geneticist. Uh, what I didn't know and what I've learned is um, you've got a bunch of other titles, um, historian, anthropologist, sociologist, and I would dare say um, a potential for a novelist, um, because not only do you tell a great story, um, but there's a remarkable story that you have uncovered. Um, and and there, there's something just uh, there, there's something multicultural and extraordinary there. So um, thank you. Thank you for the work that you do. Uh, and thank you for taking the time to tell me about it. Well, and thank you for your interest. I'm so pleased that you would take an interest and be willing to, you know, help to share this. I'm always, again, in great debt to the, uh, you know, Breast Cancer Research Foundation. Um, I've been, you know, a longstanding scholar with them. I'm, you know, so grateful that they have had the patience and understand the mission. And they're one of the few organizations in the world that is truly global. They have global yes. impact. Um, yes. you know, I, I just can't say enough positive about that and how important their funding is. I think they can, they are the largest, one of the largest public or private funders of breast cancer research in the world. And, and I, I truly see a global understanding on their part. So everything from absolute basic biology to what I would call pragmatic translation. You know, I'm probably from the middle of that curve on over to pragmatic translation. So I'm um, you know, really honored to be one of their scholars. Um, so I can't say enough about my gratitude for their support. That's wonderful. Well, thank you for your time. That was my conversation with Dr. Jeffrey Weitzel. My thanks to Dr. Weitzel for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.